Hello, and thanks for streaming The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. And this week, we're going to revisit the area of blockchain. Now, regular listeners might remember I generally start by plugging my services remorselessly, but I'm trying to give that up. There will be a quick plug in the middle somewhere, but you look forward to that. Drop my assistant Nikki, nikki at clapperton.co.uk, that's N-I-K-K-I, a note for details if you're interested when you hear it, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. So let's get to my guest today, who's a speaker and an author not only on technology and the challenges of business in this digital age, but also of science fiction. We'll come to that, but she's an expert on emerging technologies, she's had senior financial and technical roles in business, and her new book, Blockchain Hurricane, has just come out. Now that barely scratches the surface, but for the moment I'd like to welcome Kate Borcherell. Kate, welcome. Thanks Guy, lovely to be here. Well, thank you. Just over a year ago, I had a guest who'd better remain nameless, and if he's listening, he'll know who he is, who mentioned blockchain. So I asked him if he could explain it, good journalist that I am. And one of the three incidents in which I've actually cut somebody's answer out over the last two years, he said that was for wiser heads than his, mine, or the listeners to worry about. So now that I have a wiser head on the show, thanks for coming, could you give us a brief rundown? What is blockchain? <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, blockchain was originally the technology that underpinned Bitcoin, the very first cryptocurrency, which appeared in 2009. And the point with uh, a cryptocurrency, as opposed to the, the currency that we use every day, the cash we use every day, is that you can't physically see it or trust somebody to keep a ledger of it. So if I give you a five pound note, then I can't spend that £5 note again and you know that you've got it. The same if I make a bank transfer, I can check with the central database in our banks and make sure that the money has gone from me to you. But with a digital currency, what do you do? How can you prove that something has moved ownership from one person to another? Because, I mean, it's easy enough to copy something and send a copy to your friend. You don't want to do that with money. So the technology that was developed to bring about this cryptocurrency, the, the original Bitcoin, made use of little blocks of data holding transactions that could show that something had moved from person A to person B and was no longer available to person A and was now available to person B. So we actually started to get um, a ledger of movements of Bitcoins that was visible to everybody and everybody agreed on it because it wasn't just one person who was adding the information, it was a whole community of people. So what we ended up with was a ledger of information where everybody could see what, is, what was happening with things moving around and visibility does keep people honest. Everybody agreed that the transactions were correct because of some of the mechanisms that are sitting underneath to verify those transactions. And no one could change it because each of the transactions has positional integrity, a, a, a place in the ledger. And if somebody was to go back and fiddle with the transactions, then they'd have to fiddle with all the subsequent ones as well. And it becomes too difficult, too onerous, too costly to go and make changes. 
I get the concept, but I would like to roll back slightly here in that what you just started by saying was that you can't do this with money. It's not a problem with bank transfers. So mm. why, what was the impetus to introduce this currency, which had this inbuilt problem, just so that they could then find they had to build more technology to fix it? Well, there's no coincidence that the first Bitcoin came out in January 2009. The message on the very, very first Bitcoin transfer mentioned the Chancellor's bailout of the banks after the financial crisis. The white paper that described how the technology would be developed came out in the fires of that 2008 financial crash. And it all came from a very, very long-standing movement that had been moving towards digital currencies as um, almost a way of circumventing government and having a way to maintain cash transactions in the event of governmental collapse. There was a fabulous movement called the Crypto Anarchists who were very much instrumental in the, the work on cryptography and on the, the techniques and the potential for a, a digital currency over the 30 years that preceded the arrival of Bitcoin. But it was that financial crash where the trust in the banks was eroded and the final pieces were put together to produce Bitcoin. Okay, now I'm friends with a number of technology journalists, as you'd expect, uh, as indeed are you. And I find opinion on blockchain is divided, to put it bluntly. It's either the next or current big thing, or we both know one journalist in particular who describes it as pure snake oil. I mean, do you have any thoughts on why it will be so divisive? It's, it's, it's incredibly divisive because of the, the amount of snake oil that has been associated with blockchain and with cryptocurrency. The thing with creating a digital asset is that actually anyone can create a digital asset. So what we have ended up with, particularly between, say, 2015 and 2018, was a huge gold rush of ridiculous ideas and get-rich-quick schemes and the the number of ridiculous projects that certainly I've seen I think everyone in the industry has seen where they've bolted on oh we're going to have a cryptocurrency element to this and people have lost money people have uh, been defrauded there's been a huge amount of snake oil in the industry um, was that it so was, different to the, was that so different to the dot-com boom in the early 2000s no not really uh, very 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 similar but possibly with with less solid found technology technology foundation i think the dot-com boom was something that had to move on uh, the internet the boom in quite unpleasant snake oil projects around cryptocurrency came probably a little early for blockchain because with the dot-com boom pushed forwards uh, the internet and gave us what we have now in a very short time, what we're expecting with blockchain is that it will be transformational within, say, five to ten years, which is a much longer time frame. It's settled considerably now because okay. there is the... There, there, there is regulation in place and there are there are not the stupidity projects around um it, it, it's a far more civilized world <laughs> okay well we'll come to uh, the stuff that it's likely to be able to achieve in a short while but just to get back to the concept i understand from what 
I've heard uh, you say it's basically an immutable way of keeping data intact and complete and identical across a network. Uh, but as you, yeah, fair, yeah, okay. But fair. as you, ex fair. okay, good, thank you. As you explain <laughs> in your book, I, I'm glad I've been fair to blockchain. As you explain in your book, there have been changes made to these records in the past, haven't there? I mean, this does seem to undermine the whole project. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Please? Yeah, um, there are a couple of fair, there's a very specific uh, example of where a blockchain has actually been rolled back. So if you think of this as a, a list of transactions, there came a point where the development community around the Ethereum blockchain looked at a, a, an utter disaster that had happened and collectively agreed that they would roll back and restart the transactions at a certain point. What happened was that there was a an organization called the Distributed Autonomous Organization, the DAO, and this organization was wonderfully conceived to collect investment from interested parties and to allow the algorithm and the code, the smart contracts within the DAO to invest according to particular criteria in businesses, which sounds wonderful. We all know at the moment algorithms can go wrong. And what actually happened was somebody identified what the ideal investment was and managed to hack the code to make sure that all the investments went to them. So the money that was coming in from investors started to come in and everyone was very happy and then it all started to disappear again. And nobody could stop it because it was a, a contract that was set up and it was immutable and it was just happening uh, and so there was a lot of money that went in the wrong direction and they rolled back that blockchain and formed effectively two blockchains so ethereum which is uh, which is very well known now it's um, a, a very established uh, decentralized cryptocurrency went off without those transactions in and there's actually there is still a chain called ethereum classic which has that theft in it as well. So the transactions haven't disappeared, they've simply uh, what they call forked the chain before the transactions happen. So very careful how you say that obviously. <laughs> yeah okay so um, it, 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 it's immutable except when it isn't really it sounds to me. Yeah I, I, it's very unlikely that that kind of thing could occur again. That was very early in the in that blockchain's development and it is there are hundreds of thousands of transactions now uh, and you couldn't roll back uh, on something that big. Another reason that blockchain could sound a little bit murky is that uh, the, the founder and um, sort of initial developer has effectively hidden behind a pseudonym, perhaps I should say the uh, founder of Bitcoin rather than the founder of blockchain itself. Yeah, that's that's actually not, uh, not a bad thing. Um, there are a lot of theories around who the go back a little uh, stepping back a little way actually the original bitcoin white paper was published under the name satoshi nakamoto there is actually someone called satoshi nakamoto but it's pretty certain that they had nothing to do with the bitcoin white paper there are a number of thoughts around who it might have been who produced that but the general consensus is that it might have been a number of developers working together 
who chose to publish under a pseudonym because part of the crypto-anarchist ethos, I guess, is that the, the ownership of something as important as a decentralized digital currency should not fall to one person. Why should you have a figurehead when it should be managed and developed by the community? And while there is always a lot of speculation around who is Satoshi Nakamoto, and I've got my thoughts as about four or five different sets of people that, uh, that are likely candidates, I think it's a good thing that we don't know who it was. So it's effectively like a brand. It's like, you know, if you have a problem with a particular retail store, you don't go into John Lewis and say, can I speak to John, please? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Or indeed uh, McDonald's and say, can I speak to Ronald? But that's just... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> More seriously, I mean, can you see cryptocurrency becoming mainstream ever, and 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 why? I'm still not quite grasping what problem it's solving by through its existence. Yes, I can see cryptocurrency becoming mainstream. We we are already using cryptocurrency without knowing it in certain circumstances. It has some significant benefits, for instance in uh, cross-border transactions so we're not converting backwards and forwards between different currencies but possibly trans transferring uh, a cryptocurrency from one place to another um, we have the opportunity for people to access a form of payment and an honest ledger of transactions without needing a bank as an intermediary so there are, there are all sorts of ways in which cryptocurrency is uh, already useful and meeting needs and absolutely I can see crypto becoming mainstream in in various different forms do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode if you talk to the press or other media are you worried you'll be misquoted or they'll just publish their story and not yours Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. Have you put your money where, where your mouth is? If, if I were to commission you to do a speech at a conference that I were running, can I pay you in crypt cryptocurrency? Of course you can, and you can buy my book using Bitcoin or Ethereum on my website. Okay, well, I'm not running a conference, so let, let's not get carried away just at this stage, but I'll, 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 bear, I'll bear the option in mind. Thinking about applying the same question to blockchain itself, I've asked some fairly sceptical questions. I think they need to be asked, but uh, blockchain is being adopted uh, all over the place. I've spoken to one person who was using it for uh, medical purposes, medical records, that sort of thing. I'm just wondering if you'd give us an idea where we might see practical applications of the blockchain technology outside of cryptocurrency in the near future. Just to slightly backtrack, when, when you asked me about, about blockchain and I started down the, ro the road of cryptocurrency, what we established was we ended up with a ledger that everyone can see, everyone agrees on it and no one can change it. And it was those features that became interesting to business. Because if you're working with, say, a very, very diverse supply chain, for instance, you don't necessarily know all of the parties in there, and yet you want to be able to trust the transactions. And blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, as we more likely refer to it in, in enterprise, allows that 
trust and transparency without having the personal relationships. Supply chain is, is a, a particularly interesting application of blockchain. There's a, a fabulous company in Singapore that I've been dealing with who have been tracing fruit around the world and what they've discovered is by bringing together all the transactions around initially the durian fruit harvest in Thailand they can bring those into uh, an immutable uh, their immutable database they can anchor the condition of the fruit and the date that it was harvested and so on and they can watch that fruit go through the supply chain and it provides trusted proof that it was in a particular condition when it was shipped, which means that spurious insurance claims have fallen. It provides a trusted ledger of a particular producer or participant's activities on that supply chain, which has given them access to trade finance. So it's getting that trust. There's a, a fabulous initiative in Haiti at the moment as well, AgriLedger, similar idea, but looking at actually remunerating, paying the producers properly, having transparency in that supply chain so that the people who are actually producing the mangoes uh, in that particular case are being properly paid. So supply chains are really interesting one because it gives you that trusted view of the transactions that go on behind a particular asset moving around the world. And we see all sorts of things going on in the infrastructure around that, around, for instance, uh, shipping, the insurance of shipping hulls is, uh, has been uh, covered using blockchain technology for, gosh, the last two or three years by Musk and um, AxaXL and uh, various other parties. The Gartner hype cycle, which is a, a really fabulous go-to reference for the kind of technologies that are coming through, sees banking and investment services being the most mature blockchain applications and certainly we're seeing cross-border transactions and asset management starting to come through on blockchain but we're seeing things in uh, loyalty cards reward models insurance gaming even healthcare obviously you've talked about so there's there's applications everywhere there really are you, you i could talk for hours on those and getting back to your first example, if anybody thinks that blockchain is controversial, try Googling, is durian fruit nice? And uh, you'll see real controversies there. I tried it once. I can't help wondering, though, that whether this, it sounds like this is the brilliant breakthrough, impregnable technology that we've all been waiting for right up until the next one turns up. I suppose that's back to the uh, Gardner hype cycle, isn't it? I mean, why would this be different from any other technological fad that we've both seen come and go? It is not a fad. And it is not different to any of the other emerging technologies in that they all have their place. So the, the, the hype cycle is fantastic because it looks at uh, technology when it starts at, at its innovation trigger and everything goes through the peak of inflated expectations. And that's when we look and go, this is a fad, isn't it? And it plummets to the trough of disillusionment. But we've seen things like location services were a fad. I'm wondering about uh, the blockchain and about the uh, the cryptocurrency as well. Will this change the banking industry much? Does it favour the challenger banks, the newer players? Um, yes and no. So the challenger banks are there to give a, a much better service to consumers and to businesses. They are all looking at 
the application of blockchain technology. And I think the fact that the infrastructure behind the challenger banks is newer than the infrastructure behind the traditional banks will speed up their adoption of blockchain in the relevant place. So this is what I meant by the each emerging technology has its place. So we might think, artificial intelligence is going to change the world it is going to change the bits of the world that are relevant to it internet of things will change the bits of the world that are relevant to it blockchain when applied in the right place is absolutely transformative but we we have quite complex infrastructure within the banks and coming in with a whole new system is not necessarily immediately useful but gradually there are applications chipping away and coming in one at a time. But yeah, the challenger banks may have an advantage because their infrastructure is newer. Now you're doing a great job of explaining this. And of course I've read your book, so I know you're a great explainer. The other thing you do, of course, to make it even easier is, uh, or easier for the reader, is uh, you explain stuff in the medium of uh, science fiction books. Now this is something that's got me kicking myself thinking, damn, why didn't I think of that first? But someone else has. So tell me how that came about and a bit about your uh, sci-fi activities. It's an odd one, actually. I, uh, I was approached by someone a few years ago who said, look, I've got an idea for a cybersecurity book, but I'm not a great writer and, and, I, and I've, got the, I've got the knowledge and you can write. So why don't we write something together? And I said, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I'm very happy to do that. So we had a couple of cups of coffee and a couple of lunches and said, yeah, what, what, what's the structure of this book? Where are we going with it? What's the target? What do we do? And about two months in, my friend said, um, have you thought about doing it as fiction? And I said, don't be silly, I can't write fiction. And for the next eight months, he spent the time going, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. And finally, I wrote 300 words. I woke up one morning, heard the news of the WannaCry attack on NHS and, and other other organisations and thought, huh, ransomware, that's interesting. And I wrote 300 words and sent it to him. I went, like this? And he said, yeah, keep writing. So I kept writing. And 60,000 words later, I had a, a thriller set in 2040s London with a cybersecurity team. Sorry, I, I've, I've written books in the past and you make that 60,000 words later, but it sounds so easy. Uh, just, you know, do not try this at home, anybody who's listening, you know, if, if you want an easy life, that's all. It's a huge amount of fun. I love writing, but it absolutely absorbs me. So I wrote that first one and at the end, I, I left a body in the corridor at the end and it was starting to smell. So I wrote the second book, which was Hacked Future. That came out uh, a year later in 2018. Uh, I then took a year to write the blockchain hurricane. The, my, my blockchain hurricane origins applications and future of blockchain and cryptocurrency and then this year i've written the third in the series um, tangled fortunes and that should be coming out in october late october i'm just and waiting what was the first one called the first one is confusingly bitcoin hurricane the second one is uh, hacked future and the third is tangled fortunes together they make up the sim cavalier series okay. and all of the tech within that my friend who originally proposed the cybersecurity plots checks literally every word that I write to make sure I haven't extrapolated too far beyond the bounds of possibility. And he also tips me off on all sorts of fabulous and really nasty cybersecurity 
twists and tricks that I then incorporate in the text so that although you're reading it for fun, <laughs> you probably will go and change your password when you've finished. I could talk about this for ages and I suspect you could as well, but we really ought to let the, uh, the listeners uh, go back to their lives. So can I just ask, finally, where can people find out more about you? I'm always around on Twitter at Kate Borcherell. I also have all of my books are lurking on Amazon, again, under Kate Borcherell. And that's both sci-fi and non-fiction. And those are really the best places to, to find me. I also have a website, uh, surprisingly enough, kateborcherell.com. And you can actually buy my books in Bitcoin if you want. Okay, and if anybody is looking for Kate, then the surname is spelled B-A-U-C-H-E-R-E-L. Kate Borcherell, author of Blockchain Hurricane and a great deal else. Good luck with the book and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Guy. Nice, nice to be here. And thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. And don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk or my media training site at remotemediatraining.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Take care.